You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're back in the studio and getting ready to carry on with David. Last we saw, he went to Nob, Nove, <laughs> Nove. however you say it, and uh, stole, not stole, but acquired some bread. Acquired some bread. Yeah, we were kind of in the middle of that when we left off last time because uh, we, we got caught up in talking about the fact that David probably had a bit of a reputation that the uh, priest felt the need to address his sexual purity or his ritual purity, which probably refers to his sexual purity, and um, how the priest used that very polite way of speaking in which he didn't actually address David. He talked to the men so that, you know, so it's not to offend uh, his betters. Yeah, so, so a way of asking without asking. Exactly. And so, and we talked about how uh, sexual purity was actually something that was practiced during this time. And we found it in the Dead Sea War Scroll. We found it with Uriah going home to his wife. Mm-hmm. So we, we know it is, an, it, it is a practice, even though it's not specifically outlined within the Torah itself. So, and, we, and I think we have to remember too, that during all this time, Israel wasn't in a vacuum. I mean, they had so many other nations surrounding them and they were interacting with them. So they did pick up different ideas and different practices. Some of them, you know, were without any kind of moral or ethical value, but then there were some that were really detrimental to the to the country itself because they directly violated the Torah. So these kinds of things, we shouldn't be surprised to see them. It's always funny to me, I think we've discussed it before, that whenever um, people find these things in archaeology and they're like, oh, look, here's proof that Israel actually worshipped other gods besides Yahweh. It's like, I read my Bible and knew that. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those secrets. It's not actually a secret. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, this does nothing to destroy my faith. It actually confirms what's written in my the book of my faith, Mm -hmm. so... But uh, we're going to pick up in verse 5, and uh, David's response to the priest is typical, David. It's over the top. He, he tells the priest, not only have we done what the Torah requires, we've gone over and above. He says that his men's vessels are holy on a regular journey, just on a, just on a walkabout, if so to speak. So surely on this top secret mission for the king, they're even more holy, and the priest shouldn't worry about them. Now, vessels is a euphemism. Um, this is the reason why we know that the priest is talking about sexual um, purity here. Uh, the, the debate, and there is a debate, that is vessels supposed to refer to weapons or to the body? Right. And so um, the thing is, there's no weaponry at this point. So what could David be talking about? And the idea that men would refer to their bodies as a weapon, that's pretty standard language even today. I mean, watch Full Metal Jacket and you see <laughs> sure. yeah. that this is not, this is not new. Uh, it goes back to the dawn of time. So the idea that it is, a, is speaking of the male body is, it's not far-fetched is what I'm trying to say. So. In, in verse 6, the, the priest, he, he accepts David's story. He gives David the bread. It's the bread of presence, or the bread of faces, literally. And the writer explains that this is the bread that was removed from before the Lord and replaced with hot bread on the same day. Matter of fact, in the, in the Talmud, we're told that the new bread should be put on the table before the old bread is removed, so that there is always bread before the presence of God. And so... This bread would be put on the table on the Sabbath. It would be cooked on Friday before the sunset, and then it would be replaced. And mm-hmm. it would remain the entire week, which is a little bit of a miracle in and of itself. Because remember, this isn't Wonder Bread. They don't have any preservatives in it. Right. And uh, it always shocks me how long a loaf of store-bought bread lasts opposed to one that we cook at home. And it, you know, because the preservatives aren't there, it, it 
it should have you know, molded and mm-hmm. gotten dry, but this is actually what the priests eat. So it's, it's kind of strange that this is um, almost, con- it's so strange that it's considered to be a miracle in and of itself. Right. And what David is getting is not the bread, the fresh bread that, that was put out. He's getting the old bread. So um, Leviticus 24, 5 through 9 describes the observance. And so if you want to get more on that, then you'll, you can find it. But the, the, this is considered to be the most holy portion of the offering uh, of food to God. And it's supposed to be eaten in a holy place. And so the idea of a non-priest taking it out of the temple or the tabernacle and eating it someplace else was very offensive to a lot of people. And so that was kind of, um, it, it's a big deal. And this is the bread of presence. It's not the bread of Thanksgiving. There, there's some who have said, oh, well, this is not the bread of presence. It's got to be the bread of Thanksgiving because they never would have given that. Well, that just violates the, what the Bible actually says. Mm. So, you know, we want to stick with that. Um, and what David does here is still a sore point, even in the time of Jesus' ministry. We, we find in Mark 2, 23 through 28, and Luke 6 through 1, that this is brought up again. Now, is this, is this where they uh, pick the grains and, and thrash them in their hands? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's exactly what's happening. Um, yeah, they're, they're walking through the grain field. Jesus is teaching. Uh, the disciples, and the, it's interesting that the text is clear, it's the disciples, not Jesus, who are picking the, the heads of the wheat, and they're, like you said, they're rubbing them and, and eating them. And by the way, this is still done today. There's uh, Dr. Young in his uh, book, Jesus the Jewish Theologian, uh, talks about this, and he shares a story from one of the people he knows who, who experienced this in Israel, who actually did this same practice within Israel. And eating the 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 grain as you walk through the fields, totally allowed under the Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing you couldn't do was put a sickle to it. So you could, you know, get something to you know, eat while you're on your journey, but you couldn't harvest it. Yeah. And that's actually, that's actually uh, common in some different places. Um, I can't remember who I was listening to, to someone and they were, they were talking about the, this missionary who was in, I forget which country, but there were some guys working in his field or in his yard. And he had some tree, some fruit trees. Oh yes! <laughs> and they were, you know, they saw the fruit trees and they were hungry, and they just grabbed some fruit off the trees and started eating it. Well, he he had to understand the culture, and fortunately, he did. He didn't like go after them, but he was using this as an example mm-hmm. that in America, we think if someone takes fruit off of our tree, that they're they're stealing. Mm-hmm. But in other cultures, if it's fruit that's in a tree in your yard and they're working, it's mm-hmm. inhospitable to deny them right. any kind of refreshment if they're doing work for you, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some, you know, even if it's on the edge of your property, passersby should be able to just grab one as they're walking along, which I think is a great idea. Uh, well, I mean, I think it speaks to, to culture and how we as Americans have gotten very possessive. Mm-hmm. Everything is mine. And how dare you transgress my boundaries and, yeah, that's a whole topic that I won't <laughs> won't go into. Right. But with with the um with this event with with Jesus and the disciples, you know, the rabbis were were debating whether or not this constituted work or not. And it wasn't so much the picking of the grain, it was the threshing of the grain. Mm-hmm. And others says that you know, some say it was t- absolutely it's work, it shouldn't be forbidden, you should never do it on the Sabbath. Others cited uh Deuteronomy a 2315 that said, you know, if you're walking through a field, you can do this, that it's, it's okay. So the, the thing is, despite the debate, no matter the, that there were two sides uh, of argument and two schools of thought on this, Jesus isn't being attacked on the basis of there's a dispute here. They, they just jump on it as a chance to criticize Jesus. Right. This is, this is their reason to say, uh, look at him. This is why you shouldn't follow him is because he's got his attitude towards the Torah is way too liberal. Yeah, his disciples are doing work on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So Jesus replies. Um, well, and that's not even just uh, a smack on him. That's like, oh, he can't even teach his disciples right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, it's what so many people do whenever they, they oppose someone or have a difference of opinion. It's like, 
let's take the most minute thing we can find and use this as an attack to completely discredit them. And that's what the rabbis are doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, get on Facebook. You'll see examples of it all over the place. But anyway, uh, but when Jesus responds to the rabbis, he, he cites scripture, and, but he also pulls from the oral Torah, uh, the Mishnah, and it's to defend his disciples' actions. He reminds the Pharisees that their beloved David, who was almost, almost worshipped, I mean, he was so mm-hmm. idealized, and you know he was supposed to be the sign and the symbol of God's great kingdom, which they were all waiting for the return of. Right. And Jesus cites this event with David here at Nob, and he says, you know, David went on the Sabbath. We forget that according to the timeline, David would have been a Nob on the Sabbath. That's mm-hmm. when the bread is changed out. Uh, David demands to be fed, and he's given the sacred bread. The only way that such a thing can be lawful is under the oral, t- oral law and not under the Torah. Because the, the oral law has to address the situation, and the oral law is what gives the application of, of things that are unclear or foggy. And you now, well, and, and we've mentioned this before that there is kind of that guideline in the oral Torah that if it comes to saving life, precisely, you can sustaining, saving, or preserving mm-hmm, life, mm-hmm. that you can suspend most of the lesser rules. Right. And, and it's the oral Torah that gives us that application. Uh, Dr. Young, in his book, he, he gives the example that, of circumcision. Circumcision was supposed to happen on the eighth day after, after birth. But what happens whenever the eighth day is the Sabbath? Because you're not supposed to cut. You're not supposed to make any kind of incision mm-hmm. on the Sabbath. And so the rabbis had to debate that. So I think sometimes we forget that within the Torah, the written Torah, we have these things that can be contradictory because of circumstance and because of the situation. And this is what the oral Torah really tried to address. So, yeah. And, and it's unfortunate that, that we have in modern Christianity, we have this idea that there was just this monolithic blind following of these rules <laughs> that were so simply listed out and no one ever thought about it. No one ever pondered it, anything like that. And it just, that's not the case. There's, volumes and volumes of commentary mm-hmm. and, and debate and question and trying to figure out how do we live the way God wants us to live. I mean, it's, it's, it was never like just blind following and simple rules. Well, and, and I think it also shows that we as Christians haven't tried to live the Torah. Just as it's written, we have not encountered those same kinds of, of difficulties. It would be, I mean, there's another story uh, it's kind of, it's one of my favorite stories, actually, that um, the travel to the, the Passover would have fallen on a Sabbath and the, the people couldn't carry their knives because that would have been uh, work. So right. to get the knives to the temple for the sacrifice. And the rabbis were trying to figure out how do we address this? How do we, we keep this in, you know, in accordance with what the Torah says? And finally, they said, you know, leave it to the people. The people will figure it out. And so the people put the knives in the wool of the sheep. And so the sheep carried the knives to the temple. Yeah. And so. uh, I was. uh, Who was it? Was it Dr. Young? Someone was telling me they were in Israel. And uh, Dr. Young's a good guess. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, If someone was telling me they were in Israel, Dr. Young. Yeah, I'll just go with Dr. Young. He was there. Um, But he was. uh, Someone was telling me that. that even the elevators have a Sabbath setting. Yes. That you, you're not even, you know, if you live in a, a building with an elevator, you, you can't even push the button because that's considered work. And so there's a Sabbath setting on their elevators that it, the elevator stops and opens on every single floor <laughs> all day long, up and down. Well, I know uh, when our aunt bought her latest stove and oven that she was calling me going, why is there a Sabbath setting on my stove and oven? And I'm like, because you can't light a fire. So you, you turn it on and then your oven stays warm all day and you can use it because now you aren't lighting a fire. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah. And so, you know, when you haven't lived this, when this hasn't been part of your world, now you don't know how to actually work, uh, work it out and to, to make it part of your everyday life because it presents a lot of difficulties. And so 
you, this is one of the reasons why the oral Torah is, it's not an evil thing. And now are there things within the Mishnah that I don't agree with? Absolutely. But we've got to remember that, you know, it wasn't written down until 150 years after Jesus. And there is a bias against Christianity. There is mm-hmm. um, things that were probably added that shouldn't have been. But just to, to be clear, when people talk about the 613 laws of the Pharisees, they aren't talking about the oral Torah. That has nothing to do with oral Torah. Those 613 laws go back to what's in our Bible. Right. And so um, I know a lot of people don't know it. I've mentioned it before, but bears repeating. But when Jesus brings this up, he, he's not doing it to justify or uh, condemn David. He, he just says, you know, this is what happened. But he, he is focusing on the bigger question. And the bigger question in Jesus' case is, how is the Sabbath to be observed? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't need to, to address the debate already going, in, going on between the rabbis about how to properly observe the, the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. They already know all the arguments and the counter arguments that, you know, the preservation of life takes precedence over all other obligations of the Torah. The only three exceptions are idolatry, incest, and murder. Right. So those three things people can die for. Uh, everything else. The, well, and it was, you know, we've, we've mentioned it before that, um, you know, talking about the, the Torah, you know, you mentioned the 613 mm-hmm. laws, but I mm-hmm. feel like it, you know, it does bear repeating that God's law is not the Ten Commandments. Right. And, and even law apparently is a bad translation. It is. Um, it, but it's just, it kind of, that's one of my like things that kind of irritates me. And I realize <laughs> that not everyone has spent as much time working mm-hmm. on this stuff. But whenever people refer to God's law and they say, you know, God's law, he gave us the Ten Commandments. I'm like, yes, but he, he gave us the whole Torah. <laughs> and that's usually what gets translated as law when you're running into the the. Mm-hmm. Greek writings in the New Testament. Yes. It, it, it's not, they're not just referring to the Ten Commandments. And I, I don't know why that bothers me. It's, but well, it's like taking the whole thing, the whole thing. It's not just a list of don'ts. There's actually some positive things in there. There's, there's <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it Myomides who did the, the, he broke down the law into positive and negative commandments. Maimonides. Maimonides. Yeah. And so I, I, I read all this stuff, but I never stop to pronounce it. Uh, I understand <laughs> that, yeah. So, but yeah, it, and so we, it, it's interesting to look through that and see how you broke this down. But what Jesus is doing here, when he references this, he says, in your debates, you've already discussed why the law was suspended with, for David. Mm-hmm. You already know these arguments. And the argument was, in the oral Torah, it states that David's hunger was life-threatening. So mm-hmm. you don't get to, you know, say this about David and then come at me with the same, you know, and accuse me of doing the same wrong he did. If it's not wrong for David, it's not wrong for me. And he, uh, when Jesus concludes his argument, he makes this very interesting statement. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And we tend to think, oh, here's Jesus giving something brand new, completely original. No, but, it, but it's not. The <laughs> Sabbath command was from the beginning set forth as a reminder that the Jews were no longer slaves. Yes, yes. That only free people get to have a day of rest. Slaves have to work every day. Exactly. But free people get to take a day off. And now we're back to Rosh Kodesh and the lessons that are in there. But what's really interesting, I found, uh, and Dr. Young talks about this, is... Uh, so, uh, real quick, uh, so you're, are you saying the idea is that because there's an extra day off in the month for women, <laughs> that's like kind of an extra reminder that the women are not just slaves? Yes, yes. And, and property? Yes, because the women own the time uh, whenever they refuse to be distracted by men's miscalculations of time. They, hmm. they said, we have dominion over time. And so, yeah, but I was going to say, uh, Dr. Young, he actually points to the fact that uh, Rabbi Simeon uh, ben Messiah, ben <laughs> I get this wrong. Oh my gosh, I risk. Anyway, I'm going to butcher the names all the time. But the Sabbath, he actually says, completely independent of Jesus from a totally different source, he says, the Sabbath was given to you, not you to the Sabbath. Jesus' teachings aligned with a lot of what the rabbis were already mm-hmm. teaching. Whenever there's an attack against Jesus by the Pharisees, 
it's usually on some obscure point. It's from a point that's been debated and there's multiple, um, there's multiple views and opinions and they just pick the one that doesn't agree with what Jesus is doing or saying. And so, well, I mean, and it's all over the new Testament that the point of what was going on with, with Jesus, number one, you know, to redeem creation, but part mm -hmm. of what was going on with his conversations with the Jews of his day was to say, you've taken what was supposed to be a blessing to the world You've made it a blessing just for you, mm -hmm. and you've made it a, co a condemnation for anyone you think is not part of the elect. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, and I love, I love uh, Dr. Uh, Flowers actually has a great illustration here. He talks about, you know, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You know, of course, mm -hmm. that comes way later. But right. we use that as to say a preferential thing. It's an idiom of the day. Mm -hmm. It's not that, you know, he just hated Esau, but he selected Jacob and his family. And not that he selected them to exclusively receive blessings, right? but he selected them in order to bless the whole world. Exactly. And so it wasn't an exclusive thing. It was, I've decided this is the best way to take my blessings to everyone. And that's what Jesus is fighting against largely mm -hmm. uh, throughout all of his ministry is mm -hmm. are the, the people who have, you know, They've, they've set the, the Torah up as something that's exclusive and something to condemn right. people by. And it's not, it, it, it's not that. It's supposed to be something that points us back to, to the Messiah and mm -hmm. ultimately to God. Of course, you know, the Messiah, as we believe it, is God. So, mm -hmm. you know, but, and Paul talks about that, isn't Galatians, where he talks about the law being a school teacher? I um, believe so. You know, it's, it's right there. It's in your Bible. Just read it. <laughs> well, and even you can go back to the to the prophets and you know that God's talking about the fact that people have been excluded from this blessing that God had given to the nation of Israel and they were supposed to share it with the world mm -hmm. and this is why there's punishment coming their way. And so this when Jesus is talking everybody's it, it always cracks me up. They're always like, "Oh, wow, total brand new revelation." No, it's in perfect keeping with the mm -hmm. Old Testament. <laughs> It's in line with the debates that the rabbis were having. Did some of the rabbis disagree? Absolutely. But more often than not, the prevailing opinion was in line with what Jesus is saying. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus is talking here, he is actually upholding the oral law. He's affirming its significance and impact for the Jewish nation. He's not condemning it, which a lot of us have been told that he does condemn. And he uses this incident with David's life to show the significance of it. Mm -hmm. And he's in doing so, he 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 brings us back to the uniting principle, the preservation of life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think we've got to get our heads around the idea that the law is always about the preservation of life. And if we can accept that and we can celebrate that, then it stops being oppressive. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and you can, I mean, and you can even see that right down to what's considered one of the least of the commandments, which is sending a mother bird away. I to love take that. Her, I, I, yeah, I do too. <laughs> this is this is one of my favorites. If you. If you find a mother bird sitting on eggs, you can take the eggs. We have to send her away so she's not grieved. Mm -hmm. But you're also not allowed to kill the mother bird and leave the eggs. Right. Because the mother bird can produce more life mm -hmm. if you take the eggs. So it's it's a conservation type of mm -hmm. mentality in there. I mean, you wouldn't say it necessarily quite like that in the day, but that's really kind of what it is. It's it's making a way. It's it's providing for a new for more life down the road. Exactly. And and all of the commandments are about that. And every single one of them is about that. And I think we have just so maligned rules from God as being oppressive and you know they they deny who people really are and they don't um, allow people to live their fullest or be all of who they can be blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And when you recognize and you begin to see how this is about life, now it, it, they become beautiful. And, but, you know, to get there, you have to be able to say everything I want in my flesh and, and my selfish desires isn't about life. And, I, you know, and if you want a really good example of that, you know, anybody who's dealt with addiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, what you want may seem good, but it's not going to bring life. Right. And so, and I don't care what the addiction is. We can you know, make lists of those. 
So when Jesus is talking to, to the rabbis here, and he's talking about this event with David, the only way it makes sense is if we go back to the idea of the preservation of life. And so that fills in some blanks with the story. Just like earlier, uh, last episode, I think I talked about how there's no mention of the men that David is supposedly supposed to go meet. I mean, mm-hmm. yet David's telling the priest, but David's already lying to the priest, so can we trust him? What have you. It's Jesus, his own words that clarify what was happening with David. And mm-hmm. we know that, oh yeah, wait a minute, there are men. David wasn't lying because this is what Jesus said, and Jesus isn't going to lie to us. So um, I love it when it's simple. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah. So verse 7 it says, now a certain man, the servant of Saul, was, out, was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So this is going to play beautifully on what you were talking about from Dr. Flowers. Um, this verse seems completely out of place. Okay. Yeah, because I'm waiting for you to figure, <laughs> to tie this into Dr. Flowers stuff here. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah we, we totally, we are, because... Um, yeah, we're in the middle of this conversation between Ahimelech and David, and then suddenly we're told this guy's present without any kind of indication of why it's pertinent to the story of David. We can assume this is a place of worship. Uh, they just finished the Rosh Kadesh. We're going into the Sabbath. Certainly there were more than just Doeg the Edomite at the temple, There's got, or at the tabernacle, actually not even the tabernacle, this place of worship. Um, and it, we're given this little... This one little verse, and then it goes right back to David and him. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's like, okay, so why is he singled out? It's like listening to my child tell a story. <laughs> it's like listening to us tell a story. So we, well, fair enough. So, so it's out of place. We have this person who's being detained before the Lord. We can even figure out what that means. Um, but then the, the biggest question, why is there an Edomite in this place of worship for Yahweh? he's not an Israelite. He's not one of the covenant community. Why in the world is he here? So we get two solutions. Okay. Okay. So one is that he's fulfilling a vow. And when you fulfill the vow, you offered a sacrifice. So he had to wait for that process to, to be completed. Um, or he's looking for the priest to pr- uh, pronounce him clean from some kind of ritual impurity. So in other words, he's doing what any Israelite might have been doing at the temple. Sure. And, but the, the, the problem is, well, they, and we've already seen at this time, the Edomites are just kind of included. They're not at this time. They're still under that order of be kind to them. Cause you're their family. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Cause if you go back to Deuteronomy 23 and it, you've got the list of the people who are to be excluded from worshiping God. And, um, the list includes those who with crushed testicles, or had the genitalia cut off. Um, no one born of a forbidden uh, union was to enter the temple, and that's down to the 10th generation. Okay. The Ammonite and the Moabite, they were not to be allowed in because they didn't give bread to Israel when they were on the road and because of their whole dealings with Balaam, the, the donkey. But Deuteronomy 23, 7 says, You shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were sojourners in his land. Verse 8 says, children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So they were actually, you can come in, you can join in this worship, you are allowed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you talk about God hating Edom or Esau, because the two names are interchangeable, why in the world is God allowing them to come back into a sacred place of worship at all? Right. I mean, his, his commands against Moab and Amnon are, are so much more stringent. And then, you know, of course, we do have an exception with Ruth because she's a Moabite. Mm-hmm. But um, we forget that there's, there's no aggression against Edom until we get to 1 Samuel 14, uh, 47, in which we, you know, we've already passed, but that's when Saul attacks them. And we're not told why they've become enemies of Israel at this point. Now. Um, David later will make the Edomites their servants for 40 years, um, but that's, we'll get into that at okay. some point. But there's three possibilities to kind of answer our questions about why uh, Doeg uh, might have been here. One is that he's not an actual Edomite, uh, but he was just called this because he lived in that region where Edom, uh, of Edom, yeah. yeah. So possible. 
uh, Doeg was among the Edomites that Saul defeated, and he was made a slave in Saul's house. So perhaps he had converted, or he was just on an errand for Saul. And these these are different possibilities. Different possibilities, yeah, Yeah, because the Bible doesn't tell us. So we kind of have to think about what the possibilities could be. Um, There's also a possibility that Doeg was just a descendant of an Edomite who had converted three generations prior. So it could be in keeping with, um, with the Torah. And now I lean towards possibility too, because of some of the stuff that follows. We'll get there. But I, I think he was probably one of the, the Edomites that Saul kept as a slave. And, you know, and it, the king would send sacrifices. So instead mm-hmm. of him going himself, he would just, you know, have one of his slaves. And we're told that Doeg is the, the head of the shepherds, the head of the herdsmen. And so, you know, he would, you need a lamb taken. Who do you send with the lamb to the temple? Your best guy, right? Exactly. So I, you know, it makes sense to me to, to lean that direction. But I I also want to point out just because it makes sense to me doesn't mean it's right. So do with it as you will. (laughs) So verse eight, uh, then David said to Ahimelech, then, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my spear or weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So, by the way, I'm on this super top secret mission for the king, and I was in such a hurry, I forgot to grab my sword. And I couldn't even tell my men to bring it to me because, you know, it was that big of a hurry. The priest is buying it. I mean, it's like, if you think about it. I mean, if he sets at the king's table... (laughs) then surely he must be telling the truth. I mean, it's, it really is one of those type situations, as far as I can tell, like for the priest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the poor priest is so played in this moment. And, and you, you do, you feel bad for him because you know he's being played. And, and he seems so clueless. So verse 9, he says, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, or ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So we're not told how Goliath's sword gets here. We're, we just suddenly, it appears. It, it's possible that just in keeping with the custom of the day, that when you defeated a an intimidating or uh, prestigious enemy that you took some kind of trophy and you put it in a sacred place because wars aren't fought between people, they're fought between gods. Well, and I I do kind of wonder if there's some influence here of Saul by the outside culture doing that, you know, kind of like the idea of when the Philistines took the Ark to to Dagon's temple. Precisely. And then you've got Saul doing to the Philistines basically what they did to the Ark. Exactly. What the Philistines did with the Ark, what the Philistines did with um, Samson when they took him to the, the Temple of Dagon. And so, yeah, I, I do think that this is probably one of those customs that were picked up, um, was picked up by the, um, from the surrounding cultures. We have kind of hints at it, uh, but they're, they're kind of tenuous. Yeah. Well, and it would, it would make sense, though, if we've been showing if we've been working to show throughout the book how much like the the Philistines Saul is. Yeah, Saul, it, it, he, he is ultimately an enemy of the people. I, I think where we do see it kind of halfway hinted at as far as being an Israelite practice is where we have the rod of Aaron in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it, it was Aaron's weapon, quote-unquote, or Moses' weapon, quote-unquote, against the Egyptians, Mm. but it was involved in in this kind of battle where there was a victory, and so, you know, as a way to commemorate the battle, it's not quite the same, but I see kind of hints. Uh, I guess. I mean, if if you have, you know, because, I mean, David did use it to lop Goliath's head off. Right. I mean... I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't have any better answer than, than anyone else. Just well, speculation. We're, we're, and that's the thing. I mean, it, the writers expect you to know the culture and the context. They don't expect uh, you know, people in 2020 in Oklahoma to be reading this, uh, especially not people who drive cars and communicate with people on the other side of the world by a little box. Right. You know, yeah. 
They didn't even know what Oklahoma was. Right? (laughs) So, but what we're being shown is the priest is fully aware of who David is. I mean, he tells David, you know, the sword that you killed Goliath in the Valley of Elah. He knows David's story. He knows very particular details about David. And, but notice the, the sword is not on display. It, it's wrapped in a cloth, mm-hmm. and it's behind this ephod. Now, this is a different one than what the um, priest would wear. This is not the linen ephod that um, uh, Hannah made for Samuel or that the, mm. you know. This is probably more like what we're looking at with Gideon when Gideon made the ephod that became a snare to the people in Judges 8 or in Judges 17 when Micah made the ephod and the household gods. Uh, so we're starting to see that there's possibility that in the absence of the ark, the people made something to kind of take its place. And, you know, was this in keeping with the Torah? Absolutely not. Um, but we're also looking at priests who are from the house of Eli. They don't have the best reputation for doing the right thing anyway. Right. Um, you know, this is, these are priests who serve Saul. Saul, whose daughter had teraphim in her house, and we don't know why. And this is also not a, a sacred place established by Samuel. So it's probably outside the jurisdiction of where Samuel would say, hey, you need to cut this out. Mm-hmm. And so, because what they're describing here has to be something big enough to hide Goliath's sword behind. <laughs> so, you know, just do the math on that one. And again, the writer doesn't explain any of this. We're just supposed to presume to know what this is. And it's actually one of the big questions. What exactly are these things? And we talked about it a lot when we talked with Gideon. Uh, In all probability, it was probably some kind of covering for a sacred item. Yeah. Yeah. So, And, And presumably since the time that David fought Goliath, he has grown and also learned to use a sword. Right? Because I mean, he couldn't even wear Saul's armor before. Mm-hmm. And now he's saying, I can use the giant sword. And I look to see, do we have any kind of measurements on the giant sword? We don't. It's the one piece of, of, of Goliath's uh, weaponry that we don't have that it weighed, you know, however many shekels of whatever. Uh, we're actually just, it's left out. We know he has one, but that's, that's it. And... The, the thing is, if David had taken the sword after the, the encounter with Goliath to the temple and left it there as some kind of memorial or dedication to God, he did have every right to reclaim it as his own personal property. Mm-hmm. So uh, David, you know, yeah, he accepts the, the sword because there's none like it. But that makes the next story so strange. It's absolutely so bizarre what David does next, because in verse 10, we're told that David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Well, where's Gath? Philistine country. It's the Philistine country, and it's Goliath's hometown. Right. And he's carrying Goliath's sword. He's not being the smartest guy right now, because... Hi, I killed your your you know the hometown quarterback, and now I'm going to you know it, it, it's ridiculous. Even today, if somebody showed up like that in small town Oklahoma, um, who killed you know one of the 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 famous or upstanding citizens, I mean, the masses would descend and try to destroy them. I mean, it, this is not um, it's not wise. And David's just kind of rubbing salt in the wound, carrying the sword back with him. Well, and what's interesting is what's said. Isn't this David, the king of the land? Yes, yes. And that do they not sing to one another of him and dances? Saul is struck down as thousands and David is ten thousands. Yeah. Is this the guy they wrote the song about? That's <laughs> yeah. So they, the, the Philistines know exactly who he is, which you would you know kind of make some sense. But well, what? they would they would they should know him as a warrior. But why king? Think of the Philistines' mentality. Well, I understand you know, the, whoever conquers is king, but at the same time, it should still be you know on the paperwork somewhere that Saul's king, right? I'm, well, and that's it. it, it in, it's, on his, it's on his name tag. <laughs> got it on his driver's license. Well, and, and in Israel, very much so. But if the Philistines' mindset, Saul had abdicated that position of kingship because how dare he, you know, try to retain the throne when when obviously he's not even a champion who can come out and and meet their champion on the field, right? 
So David, in their minds, has already been elevated to this position, which is really telling that the enemy has acknowledged someone that the nation hasn't figured out, that God's nation hasn't figured out, should be on the throne. I mean, that's really interesting, too, whenever you think about Jesus in his ministry and the the demons calling out, uh, saying... (laughs) <laughs> son of was it was it called son yeah, of God, son, son of David, son of David. What if I had to do with you? Yeah, and and Jesus is, and even the <laughs> the Israelites haven't recognized who he is, but the demons have. So that's a very interesting parallel, especially if you consider if there are Rephaim still among the Philistines here. Well, and we know there are, and, and and that that's the thing. Whenever you consider the fact that demons are the disembodied spirits of these Rephaim. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and you get that direct connection right back here with the son of David, mm-hmm. because what was Sol- Solomon known for? One of the, the traditions was that he was known as a great exorcist. And so, you know, so we, we go back to that and you begin to see in these stories, kids are happy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> kids are playing. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, but the, uh, you begin to see in these stories how there's so many little, there's, this thread that connects and this thread that connects and individually they aren't much, but when you start weaving them together, it it really becomes something that binds the Bible together Mm. as a whole. And and that's what fascinates me. And it really encourages my faith on a level that just reading the Bible and reading each story in isolation doesn't do for me. Yeah. And it it is really interesting. Also, you you mentioned Solomon had a reputation as being a great exorcist. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, there's no records of exorcisms in the Old Testament. Right. For one. Yeah. So, and then you have also uh, Psalms that were, that were recorded uh, as being for the exercising of demons. Yeah. And, and it's, where does that come from? So that's, a, I mean, I'm going to chase that one down. That's going to, I don't know if you have anything on that, but that'll, I, that'll I, work on your mind. I, I don't, but um, I actually, I've been wanting to read um, Heiser's book, Demons, to see if he picks that up. So yeah, I need uh, to order that one. I've been, I've been waiting till after the move to order a lot of stuff. Right. Because... I don't want it to go to the wrong address. Well, that makes sense. I'd hate to not get that one. But yeah, um, I'm looking because we've like covered like three pages of my notes without, <laughs> without me looking at my notes. I'm seeing if we've, we uh, missed anything. And so, but yeah, the, the main point there is uh, since David did conquer Goliath, he, he is the hero and he should be viewed as king. I mean, and, and oppose that with, with Saul, who's raving in his house. Mm-hmm. And so Saul is, there's not much kingly about Saul, particularly to outsiders at this point. Right. So verse 12, uh, David took these words to heart and he was much afraid, afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And it, it seems as if David really was clueless about how he would be perceived when he went to Gath. Uh, you, you know, I think we've got to remember he's still a young man here. Um, he's not, you know, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have a lot of, uh, he's smart, but, the, but sometimes, okay, I can throw the stone because it's been thrown at me. Um, uh, sometimes smart people don't always have the best common sense. Fair enough. And, you know, and I think David was very smart in some ways. And I think also there's maybe a little hubris going on that he can you know, go where he likes, go where he wishes. He might be trying to think, you know, reasoning along the lines of, Hey, they're Saul's enemies. Saul's my enemy. Maybe we can get along. And so, and we, we talked about that being a possibility even with the priest. And now David's going to go back to the Philistines at some point, but um, it's going to be a few chapters. And, but at this point, in verse 13, we're told, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in the hands of in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David changes his appearance. Um, he, he consciously chooses to change their perception of him to go from this hero who everyone's singing about and who defeated Goliath to this madman. And now this is a different word that's used to describe Saul's behavior. Okay. So it's not the same thing. Uh, the root word for what David did, it does is based on the word for praise. Um, we find it in Isaiah 14, uh, 12. Now listen to the verse. 
How are you fallen, O heaven, O day star, O son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who are laid low? So, um, Hillel ben Shar, uh, ben Shakar, sorry, hello ben, Hillel ben Shakar, um, which this is Satan, this is Lucifer. Mm-hmm. And we find several times that um, this word is used to describe madness inspired by God's punishment. Uh, it, it's madness that is promised in Deuteronomy 28, 28. Uh, it's a type of madness that's linked to idolatrous worship in the Chaldeans. Uh, that's Jeremiah 50, 38. David's use, uh, uh, ruse, um, includes you know, making markings on the doors uh, and drooling in his beards. And we're not told what he wrote, which kind of gives a little bit of an illusion to when Jesus drew on the ground with a woman in adultery. Mm-hmm. We don't know what, she, what he wrote there. Um, but from its context, it's reasonable to think that these are either curses or incantations. Uh, writing on the wall still carries that connotation today of prophetic words. Mm-hmm. Um, gates and doorways are inscribed in, in Israel with um, the words of the, of the Shema. Right. And so that's and the command to do that is Deuteronomy 6 9. Many, many religions consider doorways to be liminal spaces that kind of place between places. Uh, that this is where the spirit realm and the, the physical realm overlap. And so you might have access to the spiritual realm. So to write these incantations on a doorway might actually be a way of cutting off access to the spiritual world when what, what, what David's doing. Uh, or it could be perceived as that. Yeah, and, and there's I mean there's scientific papers written on the they call it the doorway effect. Yes, that a threshold, a boundary can actually it can change the way you behave. Mm-hmm. It can change uh, your. It can actually it actually tends to make people forget if you've yes. ever walked into uh, if you've ever walked from the living room to the bathroom and forgot why you were in the bathroom <laughs> or walked from the bathroom to the kitchen and forgot why you went to the kitchen. It's because actually passing through doorways has a psychological effect that changes what you're doing. Yes. And so I, and that's, that's one of the things I find interesting, uh, you know, here in the Midwest, of course, you know, we're, we're inundated (laughs) with, with startup churches. Yes. Um, And I'm not saying anything bad about them necessarily, but there is, there's these two, uh, competing thoughts in this part of the world that one is it doesn't matter what your building looks like because you're not there to look at the Mm -hmm. building and then the other thought is well why don't we make it beautiful so that we'll prepare our minds to think about Mm -hmm. the beauty and and richness of god's glory i wrestle with this because i think you can go too far in either direction (laughs) as an artist i want all the pretty things as a practical person let's save the money and feed the poor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of, you know, where that is it, but it's, it is interesting that we discount that so much when we're putting things together that we look at it and we go, Oh, well it's, it's just a building. It's just for, uh, for something to keep the rain off of, uh, of us while we're gathered. And space does impact how, you know, the space we inhabit impacts our attitudes, it impacts our moods, and the Bible is very conscious of this, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have the tabernacle and the temple that's set up of going through the various levels to get to that holy mm-hmm. of holies. So each time you go through, you, you change your perception, and this is not, you know, through each, each progressive layer, and this is not isolated to to israel this is something that is consistent throughout the ancient near east it's consistent in religions that had no no contact with these ancient near eastern religions Mm -hmm. it's part of how we as humanity function and this this idea that space can can be a conduit to you know open mind and open heart uh this is this is normal and I, as you said, there actually seems to be something encoded within our own physiology that, that reaffirms this. Yeah. And so well, and it's actually so much uh, a thing that I think it was Google or Apple, one of them, their offices have no um, thresholds on the doorways, no uh, oh. lower thresholds so that you don't have, you physically don't have to raise your foot anymore to get from one room to the other. That's crazy. And because they, 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 they say that helps it it apparently <laughs> minimizes that doorway effect that's crazy 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, and evidently God even acknowledges it at some point because, you know, if, if you ever go to somebody's house who is a practicing Jew, uh, one of the things you'll find at the doorway is that mezuzah mm-hmm. and that, and by the way, Christians, if you're going to put those on your house, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Don't put it straight up and down. I know that's more aesthetically pleasing. It's not supposed to be look up the proper angle for it to, to be put at. So if you're going to do it, do it right. Um, but, you know. We're, we're Westerners. <laughs> we like our, our levels. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know, in this part of the world, everything's flat. So, um, but, the, but the, the thing is that you don't enter a space mindlessly, that you would enter a space very mindfully. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why that's there. And so David, you know, he capitalizes on this and he, he begins writing these things. And, you know, this is something that a holy man would do, uh, that someone who uh, had some kind of spiritual authority would do. When he's drooling on his beard, oh my goodness, you know, this would have been just awful. You don't disgrace the beard. Matter of fact, we're going to have a story later where uh, men get half of their beards cut off as a way of shaming them. You, you, you know, the beards were oiled. Beards were... Uh, protected because th- this was a, a symbol of status. And unfortunately, one of the common traits we find among Israelites or among prophets in general is, is that they would degrade themselves, so that they mm. would deny the status. I mean, we see that uh, when Saul is prophesying before Samuel and he's laying out naked in front of Samuel prophesying. But we also see it with Ezekiel and we see it with Isaiah. And so it, it continues forward because personal. Uh, status and stature is not something that has to be defended or can be easily sacrificed in service to God. So um, verse 14, Akish tells his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think this is a reasonable question, uh, but Akish uses a different word than what, Dave, what was used to describe David's behavior. Uh, we find that word in 2834, and it's in the middle of God's descriptions for uh, disobedience. He says, so that you are driven mad by the sights that you see. So this is not the same madness that God promises to inflict for disobedience, but it is part of the, the punishment for disobedience. So there's a slight discrepancy. Uh, Isaiah 9-7b says, the prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and hatred. Uh, 2 Kings 9-11, and Yehu's, uh, or Jehu in your um, English Bible, uh, it says it's anointing, and it's, the word is used to refer to Elisha. Jeremiah 29-26 uses the word in a message uh, to, of the false prophet Shemaiah in his accusation against Jeremiah. So in total, the, the word appears seven times. Three times it's used in Samuel by King Achish, Two times against legitimate or describing legitimate, or sorry, it's two times in legitimate prophecy, three t- and two times it's an accusation against legitimate prophets. Hmm. So the 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 use of it here seems to denote that Akish thinks that there's some credibility to David's status as a holy man within this little facade or ruse that that David is presenting, mm-hmm. and harming a prophet was not something you did because. You didn't know which God protected him. Right. And so if, even if you're a foreigner and not part of Israel, I mean, we, we talk about touch not God's anointed. Uh, that has something different. We'll come back to that for just a second. But in this time, the, the prophet was a representat- representative of a God. And this was, again, across all cultures, not just Israel. And we need the prophet to be protected, not because... You want to save him, but you want to save yourself. Right. And not just yourself, your entire town, your entire country. It could be endangered if the prophet's harmed because now you've angered the gods. And we should note that touch not God's anointed. Prophets are never anointed. Interesting. They're, they're not. And so when you hear somebody at a church today say, I'm a prophet of the Lord, you don't get to question me because I'm God's anointed— they don't even know their Bible. Stop listening to them. I mean, it's only... Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, priests and kings are anointed. 
Yeah. And, and so now if we want to talk about their, their role as a spiritual leader and the role of something comparable to a priest, which we don't quite have because priests weren't preachers, right? Uh, then, then we might get into somewhere where this might be applicable today. But it is not applied to the prophets. The prophets were always at, under the scrutiny of the people to determine whether or not they met the qualifications of being a prophet as described in Deuteronomy. And mm-hmm. if they didn't, we killed them. So if we're going to talk about, um, you know, prophets today and whether or not we should um, respect them and how we should respect them, maybe let's go back to Deuteronomy and start talking about how much we should um, apply that to prophets today. Um, So, I mean, we can't pick and choose is what I'm trying to say. You don't get to say, I'm going to take this part of the Bible because I like it and it makes me happy and it legitimizes what I'm doing. And then ignore the part that says you're accountable. Yeah, and well, and that's the difference between proof texting <laughs> and harmonizing. Yes, I mean you you can because you know like when we're studying, we should mm-hmm. take the different scriptures that have to do with one another, mm-hmm. put those together, and see the whole picture God's painting about that particular part. Yeah, versus taking a whole bunch of <laughs> verses that have nothing to do with each other, mishmashing them together. And calling it exegesis. Well, and you can't do that. No, you you can't. And so you know, I'm kind of harsh because on, on people who call themselves prophets today because I've seen so many people who have wanted this office and this role because they see it as some kind of nice, shiny, sparkly gift from God. There is no prophet in the Bible that went after it who wanted this. They understood the gravity of the situation and what it was going to cost them. If you're not willing to pay those kinds of prices, Go back and read the story of Ezekiel, read the story of Isaiah, Mm -hmm. read Mm -hmm. the story of Jeremiah. If you are not ready to do that, you have no business accepting that title. And I'm not saying you have to do that. Right, but be willing. But being willing. Well, and and I know I'm I'm probably, you know, uh, far astray from where we need to be, but I I feel strongly about this one because I have seen, I've seen it abused way too many times and I've Mm -hmm. seen people's Mm -hmm. lives ruined by people who... Oh, I'm a prophet when all they are is David out here playing in the Philistines. And yeah, maybe they're God's people. Maybe they're part of the covenant community. But David wasn't really acting as a prophet in this moment. And they aren't either whenever they're trying to um, present themselves as as being enlightened by God. So uh, just, you know, any prophetic word you get, weigh it against scripture. If yep. you can't go there, then it's it's not it's not something you should listen to. So. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. So verse 15, uh, he says, this is Akash still talking. He says, do I, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So I do, I do think that's hilarious. I've got enough people <laughs> rambling about nothing to me. <laughs> I don't need one more. Well, yeah, well, and there's several... Several theories as to what he's uh, saying here. There, there's one story that Akish's daughter and his wives are, were mad, so or wives and daughters, plural on both sides, and so he had to deal with them. You know, why why would he want somebody else in his house? Um, he's ruling over a kingdom of freaks. Um, he has the Rephaim there. He has Goliath and his brothers with their six th- uh, six fingers and six toes, and mm-hmm. you know, um, he he already has. People who were were not normal and who mm-hmm. were part of his court. So does he need any more of these? There's a third theory that says maybe he was trying to protect David because David he didn't want David to be killed. Because if David um, David was killed, then he's got to take on Israel all over again. Right, and he's got to go back. Uh, now the other thing is. Some people say he was just playing along with David's ruse because if he recognized David as sane, now David, under the rules of that battle, that championship battle of, of Goliath, David has every right to take his throne. Mm-hmm. So all of this, you, you, again, questions, questions, questions. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. I, I kind of would have leaned toward if, if he would have killed David, then he would have known that Saul would stay on the throne and would have incited battle and would have to deal with Saul. And that maybe by protecting David, knowing that David somehow should be king, that 
you know, maybe David might go more leniently on them in the future. Yeah. Which doesn't happen, but, you know. Well, and there is this really weird relationship with David and the Philistines, and we're going to come back to that. But what I find interesting, the two stories, um, the, the priest at Nov and getting the showbread, and then the story here at Gath, they, they play together. They play together quite well. Um, because in both of them, we have David fleeing to a significant place, a mm-hmm. place that, you know, it's theologically loaded. Um, they're places of worship. They're the, the palace uh, of Gath, the leadership of the Philistines. He is known. When he arrives, the people know who he is. The priest knows who he is. The king of Gath knows who he is. The, so he's not arriving incognito. Everybody knows exactly who he is. Both give detailed accounts of his exploits. Mm-hmm. They, they, they aren't, there's no vagaries in what they're saying. David deceives the priest. He says, hey, I'm on a mission for the king. Mm-hmm. And then Achish is deceived because David pretends to be a madman or a prophet. And so how the stories work together is not going to be completely revealed until we get a little further along in some of the events that, that play out. But for now, I think we can see that David's kind of an equal opportunity offender. He, he's not overly in awe of the priesthood. Um, he has no problem deceiving the priest, but he, he's not scared of, of the king of Gath either. Right. Um, you know, there's this kind of brazenness in David that allows him to just do what he please. Uh, he, he justifies his actions. He's going to manipulate both sides, uh, his own people, the people of, the, the, of Gath, the mm-hmm. Philistines, if it serves his purpose. And in this sense, he really is that true king because a king doesn't play favorites. Uh, he, a king will use whatever's before him to, to get what he thinks is his. And he's going to make both his subjects and his enemies conform to his will. Yeah. And so even though we look at this and we go, oh, that's such a terrible trait, when you think about the... Um, the conditions and, and how brutal the, the wars were and, and how hard it would be to defend your country's borders at this time and the need for, you know, brutal response to brutal uh, attacks. Mm-hmm. Now you're starting to, okay, yeah, maybe David really is a guy for this job. And it really isn't about, you know, being compassionate and loving at this point because that's going to get everybody killed. You've got to have someone who, who can be a little cold hearted, can be, be deceptive. Mm. And so um, he makes a lot of sense from just a strictly practical point of view. Yeah. Now, we're going to see him kind of grow and mature and change as, as he goes through the rest of his journeys. And we're going to talk about, you know, whether these traits are actually really good traits for a man of God or if David needs to change and does he change and, and what that looks like. Right. Because, um, I, it's just too easy to to judge David by our standards today. And I think we need to avoid that. But at the same time, we do need to judge him by the standards put forth in the Bible that God says, hey, this is good things for my people to do. These are bad things for my people to do. Right. He, he still is subject to that. He's not above that. And I don't think God ever presents him as above that. Otherwise, why in the world would he have prophets who, can, who come to him and to correct yeah, him. Yeah, much later, yeah, we see a lot of that. <laughs> so um, I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up. Next week, we're going to go into Psalms 34, which is supposed to have been written during this this period of time. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I want to begin to bring in is when the Psalms are being written, um, what they have to reveal to us about these specific situations. Because if David really did write them either at this time or about these times, now we have another lens to view these events mm-hmm. through. Yeah, and I, I think that's going to be really interesting because a lot of times we do tend to look at the Psalms out of context. Yes. And, well, unfortunately, a lot of the Bible we look at out of context. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, putting the Psalms back into the story, lining it up, it really is going to... I'm excited about this because this is just going to... Well, you've wanted to do the Psalms for a open. long time. <laughs> well, I, I think it would be fun to do um, a recurring, like, you know, maybe between books, we pull out some some psalms and, and 
play with them, but it would take us a long time to go through the Psalms. Well, may, maybe what's, what but. we need to do is we need to, um, as we go through Samuel and the book of Kings, we'll pull out the ones that go there. And then when we go back, we can pick up the ones that were missed. Yeah, that, that <laughs> so. could work. I mean, we've, we've got time to do it. Yes. So. Not like we have, you know, a shortage of Psalms in the Bible. Right. So, right. so. anyway, well, um, yeah, sounds like a good spot to break. Uh, everyone, hope you're having a good time listening along. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit up Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is our website. Gets you to everything that's connected to us. Um, I haven't asked for any support lately, but one thing I do want to ask is if you haven't, please hit up Apple Podcast, app, iTunes. Um, give us a review. Um, a or rating. Re- yeah, a review and a rating, regardless of where you listen. Um, that would help us out a whole bunch. YouTube. Yeah, YouTube, anywhere. Um, hit like, subscribe, and uh, leave us a comment. Yeah. We always love getting comments; those are fun. Yeah, yeah, especially if they're encouraging. That that helps. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. In the meantime, we will, I guess, see you on the internet. So we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.